you can hit all the curriculum connections you need <laughs> within that approach. And that's, that's what is important with inquiry because start from where they're passionate about, remind them of the need to connect to each other and let's walk together towards that learning, whatever it may be. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. I'm Lynn Borton, host of Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. There wouldn't have been salmon in these trees, but there sure might have been sturgeon. That was my sudden insight as I stood by the historic marker and scanned the river in front of me. I just spent the morning immersed in what my guest today would describe as the four branches of natural curiosity, and I needed a walk to help me absorb what I'd been learning. So I headed for the most natural spot nearby, Theodore Roosevelt Island, a lovely and wooded retreat in the Potomac River, just across from the Kennedy Center and within sight of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. The Natchitank of the Algonquin people originally inhabited the island, which lies just upstream from the Potomac's intersection with the Anacostia River, a name that derives from their own. It's one of my favorite places to walk and reflect. Natural curiosity is both an idea and an entity. In 2011, Natural Curiosity, the entity, a nonprofit organization, set out to demonstrate how an inquiry-based approach could enable educators to meet Canadian education ministry expectations to include environmental education throughout the school curriculum. Natural Curiosity, the entity, is housed at the Dr. Eric Jackman Institute of Child Study Laboratory School, a nursery to sixth grade school at Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Their approach includes publication of a book, also called Natural Curiosity, which describes the idea of natural curiosity. As writer Richard Louvre put it, that the point of natural curiosity is not to study a thing, but to inquire into the connections and relationships of all things and spirit, seen and unseen. It was the second iteration that really caught my attention. Even beyond the obvious immediate appeal of the curiosity in the title, for its very deliberate focus on indigenous perspectives of inquiry. What does that mean exactly? I wondered. The folks at Natural Curiosity say the driving motivation for the second edition was a burning need in the wake of strong and unequivocal recommendations by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to bring indigenous perspectives into the heart of Canadian education settings, most notably in connection with environmental issues. The authors describe the second edition as a humble evolution of the first, signifying the starting point of an important conversation about learning in relationship with Mother Earth. It was focusing on that relationship that had me thinking about there being fish in the trees. Doug Anderson, one of the second edition's authors, devotes much of his time translating indigenous histories and culture for contemporary education systems and media. There are salmon in the trees, he explains. The fish living in the river also nourish the trees on the banks when they die. It's all connected. We need to appreciate that. In fact, we need to center it. So what does it take to center indigenous perspectives in environmental inquiry? And how might we all do 
more of that and better at it. To help feel our way toward those answers, I'm joined today by Alexa Nitsis, Program Manager for Natural Curiosity, and Elise Kennedy, a doctoral candidate at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, also co-program manager and soon to be acting director at Natural Curiosity. So welcome, Alexa and Elise. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks so much for having us. So grateful to be here. I'm very excited about this. The first of many, many clues I had at just how transformative centering Indigenous perspectives can be showed up in your bios. And Alexa, I wanted to ask you, I wondered if you could tell us what it means to be a guest on Turtle Island. Oh, lovely question, Lynn. To me, being a guest on Turtle Island is really going back to my own personal identity. So for myself as a geography and history educator, I've learned that so much of Indigenous education for non-Indigenous folks is a call for us to really connect with our own ancestors, our own cultures, and our own stories. And on top of learning the history and various perspectives of folks around Turtle Island, really just recognizing where we are and where we come from in a holistic way. And through that perspective, I think that we can really understand and come to know and relate to who the Indigenous peoples of Turtle Island really are. And that feels like a great place, Elise, if I could ask you for a land acknowledgement. Yes. Thank you, Lynn. I'm so glad you asked. So as you may know, we do, here in Canada at least, we do a lot of land acknowledgements, and these are ways of acknowledging the traditional territories that we are on. What we find is that it's important to acknowledge territory, but also not let it be sort of like the beginning and end of what you're doing and, and what your commitment is to living a good life and living in harmony with Indigenous values. It's, also, it's actually just the beginning. It should just be about situating yourself and then knowing where you're where you are but then also knowing what's what that means and what that compels you to do and there's a great quote by dr hayden king and he talks about how it's really important that you talk about your place and your location because there's power in that and there's a scale to that so if you're a university institution you have a bigger piece to play in this puzzle you have more power so you have to do more but it's also important for us as individuals to center ourselves and, and commit to truth and reconciliation too. So <laughs> that's all a long way to say that I'd love to share a land acknowledgement that was actually created by grade six students collaboratively at the Jackman Institute, where Natural Curiosity is housed at the University of Toronto. And this is a really great acknowledgement because it's a nice way of showing the thinking process of, of children and how they're taking in what they're learning and applying it in their context and in, in yeah, their local world, which is really beautiful. So I won't read all of it because it's a little bit long, but I'll read some of it to you. Wonderful. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So it says, we wrote this to share some of our learning and to teach others. We thought about who would be hearing it, and we didn't want to make it too complicated or too simple. We'd like to thank the first peoples of this land and all of creation, including the animals, plants, land, water, air, rocks, trees, and all that exists on this beautiful earth. We honor the Indigenous people whose traditional territories include the land on which we gather today, the Patoon, the Wendat, the Mississaugas, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and other nations whose name we no longer, no longer remember because of the impact of colonization. We want to honor the treaties that were made with the land and between First Nations and the Crown. 
Treaties should be honored no matter what political party is in power. The story of Canada that most of us know is not the whole story. We have been learning from Indigenous sources about losing language and culture through residential schools and also about ceremony, celebration, and strength of community. When we are thinking about doing something to the land, like dams or pipelines, we should ask Indigenous people first because they lived here in balance with nature for thousands of years. We have lost our relationship to the earth by doing things like polluting and taking too much. We need to ask ourselves, what is more important? What I get out of this or what happens to the land? We need to think seven generations ahead. What we do today, how will that affect tomorrow? We invite you to do the same. So that was grade six students, which I thought was just so, yes. so powerful. That's fabulous. It's just a great way of sort of contextualizing where we are here. Uh, both Alexa and I are in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And for us, it's just, it's really important to to give credence to that and, and acknowledge that. And especially considering that we, we are guests on Turtle Island. We are settlers and my family background is Hungarian and Irish. And it's a, it's a wonderful country that we live in here, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't ours to begin with. And we really need to, to honor that and treat that well. So I think it's also important in the work that we do with natural curiosity to, to be explicit about our positionality as well, because we go into classrooms, we go into conferences, and we talk about Indigenous perspectives. And it's important to, to explain that these are perspectives that we have been gifted with learning through close partnership with Indigenous peoples from a variety of places and spaces across the country. And we don't, we can't speak for Indigenous peoples, and we don't have that knowledge, but we are happy and really committed to sharing what we what we can with other people because that's part of our commitment as Canadians to truth and reconciliation. Murray Sinclair talks about how it's the role of all Canadians to do their part for decolonizing our country and committing to truth and reconciliation. So that's a big part of this. I was in a webinar a few months ago with Nicole Richmond, who's a lawyer, an Anishinaabe lawyer here in uh, Ontario. And she was talking about how it's so important for non-Indigenous peoples to talk about Indigenous perspectives and values and connect to it in an intercultural way too, so that you're bringing in your own background and finding finding consensus and finding that. I thought that was really important just to share, you know, how we came to this work and why it's important to share, but we are not Indigenous and we're not the wealth of knowledge that they can provide, but we are doing our best. Thank you for that for that context and for the to the sixth grade students who crafted the land acknowledgement because having made myself a little bit of a student of natural curiosity in the last weeks and months, you know, I've come to understand some of what what the approach consists of. And the acknowledgement is like this wonderful evidence of the impact of that approach in their thinking, right? And I wonder if we could just unpack that a little bit. You all have these wonderful introductory videos on your website. Highly recommend people take a look. I'll have links on my <laughs> website to them that describe what you call these four branches about lighting the fire, sending out roots, the flow of knowledge, breathing with the world. And I wonder if we could just unpack that. I'd love to have you speak a little bit to what that consists of and why that's different from what other people may have had in their environmental education or their idea of their relationship to the environment and the world. 
just to start us off, so we start off in the East with inquiry and end engagement. Then we move forward to experiential learning, the second branch. Our third branch is integrated learning, and the fourth branch is moving towards sustainability. And what's really unique and special about our four-branch framework is the fact that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and it's not something that will amount to a final product, if you will. It's a really holistic framework, and each branch is interconnected with the other. I think as part of that, something that we introduced with our second edition, as you mentioned, is the associated Indigenous lenses, which are crucial to really grounding the branches. Because before that, we didn't we didn't have Indigenous lenses. And though these were holistically connected, we received plenty of feedback from educators across Turtle Island saying that more needs to be done to connect these already great branches and to really ground them in, in particular, Anishinaabe knowledge, because that's where we connect back to locally. You're listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Alexa Nitsis and Elise Kennedy to talk about natural curiosity and incorporating Indigenous perspectives in environmental education and everything else. It's not a how-to book. It's not a how-to-teach book. It's not a step-by-step breakdown or a recipe. These things are all great, but they don't account for the many, many variables of what's, what's happening uh, in, your, in your classroom, in your community, in your, in your local environment. So that's why it wasn't written that way. It was written instead to be something that provides support for educators to take, take these branches and the associated Indigenous lenses and find what resonates with their students. So the whole inquiry process is we're talking about letting the curiosity of your learners drive what you're going to be learning about. So that's a great way to learn, especially especially with young students, but honestly with students of all all ages. I all think. of us. That's how, <laughs> yeah, that's how I like to learn. Start with what you're passionate about or what you have those burning curiosities about, right? It really is about taking a diagnostic of, of who's in the room with you and where do they want to go and what do they want to learn. And I think that's really, really exciting. That's a really engaging way to learn. And it lets you do a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily do in, a, in the four walls of a classroom. It often takes you outside. It often gets messy. But that's, that's part of what makes learning really memorable and cements those, those memories. I think back to my own experience as a student and the best memories were the ones where you got to go outside, you got to get your hands dirty, and you got to really connect to what you, what you really cared about. So I think that's, that's sort of the mission of natural curiosity through inquiry and through connecting to indigenous perspectives by situating and centering the earth uh, and connection to earth uh, and its importance and letting it letting it meet students where they're at of, of any age and any interest. So two things from that really jump out at me. One is I was really struck at something in the literature that it's not just about hands-on. It's also about minds-on and hearts-on, which is a level of kid or teacher engagement that is more than just, I get to mess with stuff, but I feel stuff in both literal and spiritual ways. So I think about that. 
which I think is really beautiful, actually. And I think about the approach also challenging the Euro-Western child-centered pedagogy. And I wonder how you square that with driving things based on the curiosity in the group. How is How do you... How do you weave those together? How do you disentangle them? I mean, what is it that happens there? Oh, that's that's an awesome question. And I think that really relates directly to, to, to all of the branches, but in particular to lighting the fire, which is the first mm-hmm. branch of natural curiosity. And I think that there's this idea in Euro-Western pedagogies that children come into classrooms as blank slates and they're just ready to absorb all of the information and knowledge that there is. But in reality, children have various lived experiences, perspectives, stories that they are already aware of. A really close Indigenous educator that we work work with, Natasha Baskavan, always says, children's fire doesn't need to be ignited. The fire is already, it's already there. Lovely. Yes. Over time, education kind of, or traditional education tends to kind of just, their fire gets blown out over time. But through our perspective at Natural Curiosity, we really want to light the fire and keep it, keep it going, asking questions about their personal and heartfelt connections to the land, stories of this place. How do certain things work in the environment? And I think the first step to that is more often than not getting outside and creating these opportunities for students to holistically learn with the land and on the land and from each other. And time and time again, as part of that, research shows that this form of active and transformative learning continues to have a positive impact on student agency, students' mental health, and their relationships with each other, right? So it it really is a benefit to their socio and emotional health, in addition to other things as well. What are the outcomes that you're hoping for? And why are they important? There are definitely various outcomes. I initially thought of a really phenomenal TED Talk by an Indigenous educator named Nikki Sanchez. I believe it's called Decolonization is for Everyone. And in that TED Talk and in their writing more generally, they say, this history is not your fault, but it moving forward is your responsibility. So I think everybody in Canada and the United States has a huge responsibility moving forward to really pave the path for a better a better future and decolonization. So I think for me and for natural curiosity as a whole decolonization is is a huge one for that a future that we hope to see and just reconciliation. As we spoke about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, that actually came out in 2015. And it was a response to the gruesome legacy of residential schools and the history that many Canadians, many people living in Canada, many settlers didn't know of beforehand. So really bringing that to the forefront and first learning about the history, right? Then maybe unlearning the traditional ways that you were brought up, right? Because 
we have so many different ideas and perspectives on how the world works, and maybe they're not always as they seem. So that is a huge one with the work that we do. And of course, with our education connections, we want to see a future where all students succeed and achieve whatever they set out to in a world that is of the benefit to everyone, not just humans, but to the animals, to the plants, to the rocks, to everyone that is is here and present on, on Turtle Island. Nice. Nice. Elise? I think that's, that's great, because that also connects to Dwayne Donald's work, who's a professor in Alberta. He's Canada Research Chair, and he's Cree. And he talks about how we should be approaching spaces and places as living relatives, which I think is just so beautiful to think about the histories that we see them in Western society as inanimate parts of our world, but other cultures, indigenous cultures, see them as having a spirit, as being living, which I think if you start to make that shift in your thinking, it really does change the way that you want to take care of your environment and also the way you see yourself in your environment. I think a lot of what can be problematic in environmental education is this idea of nature being this pristine place that's far away. You have to travel somewhere outside of your environment to get there. This green romantic idea of this. And that's actually a problem because then you stop seeing yourself as part of nature. And we very much are part of nature as human beings. And so it's nice to remind ourselves of that by seeing all our living relations around us in forms that don't look like human beings, like like the way we we traditionally see them. But it's quite it's quite nice. And there's also this great idea of uh, akinomage, which is the idea of taking direction from the earth. And this is a great idea from uh, that Doug Anderson talks about in the book. And it's just about how we really should be looking to nature for, for how to live in a good way, both with each other and with, with our planet. And it's a nice way of, of talking about how of how much value we do need to place on relationships. I was also in a really great webinar with uh, Leroy Little Bear, who's also out of Alberta, and he's a Blackfoot. He talks all about, about meta- metaphysics. At its core, he talks about how it's just a way of structuring society. When we look at the difference between uh, Indigenous metaphysics, like Native science from a Blackfoot perspective, like he talks about, and Western metaphysics, there's a real big difference that comes in when we think about what they're centered on. So Western is more centered on time. We, we make this appointment at 10 a.m. We have 60 minutes to do this. If you get the kids in 10 minutes, it's all very time-centered. But in Indigenous metaphysics, it's very much relationship-centered. So it asks us to think about what kind of impact do, does our relationship with our Earth have on ourself and on our relationships with other people, too. It just, it's a really, it just, for me, when I heard that, I thought, oh my goodness, that, that's what's been missing. Like that is such a pivotal part of who we are as human beings that has been missing in the way we're teaching students. I think we do need to teach them. It's about relationships first, and you can hit all the curriculum connections you need within that approach. And that's, that's what is important with inquiry because start from where they're passionate about, remind them of the need to connect to each other. and. Let's walk together towards that learning, whatever it may be. I have an exercise in relationship building that I want to invite you to join me in. This is my big jar of wannabe analogies. 
I have little slips of paper in here. I'm going to take one for each of you, one for me, one for my audience. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of slips of paper. And we're going to make <laughs> so exciting. an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. Okay. Alexa, yours is fireflies. How is curiosity like fireflies? Elise, yours is binder clip. How is curiosity like binder clips? And mine is cat. Oh. <laughs> and and then I have one for the audience. We're going to do this real quick. Do one of you want to go first? You want me to kind of do it while you think a little bit? I want to hear yours, Lynn. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. So how is curiosity like a cat? Well, of course, the old adage, you know, curiosity killed the cat. My mother always said satisfaction brought it back. So I want to stay away from that, actually. And I want to say that curiosity is like a cat because it can actually be kind of stealthy, but also really elegant and nimble and lithe when we let it. And like cats, curiosity has kind of a secret life, I think. And that it's sort of nice to think about what that life might actually look like and maybe go towards it. So that's how curiosity in my mind is like a cat. One of you want to go next? I can. I can okay, go, go ahead. Fireflies. This is very fun because I had so many, so many thoughts when I first heard the word. Fireflies really showcase that curiosity can take you wherever you want to go. We always mm. tend to see fireflies all together, right? So the more you practice curiosity, the easier it will become and the more embedded in your life it will be. Mm, and I think nice. that's, that's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Elise, how okay. is curiosity like binder clips? Ooh, okay. So I felt like this one was very um, appropriate to be since I just finished my thesis and <laughs> have many binders. <laughs> um, but I think curiosity is like binder clips because it's this expression of of an investigation, but one that can be ongoing and change. So it's impermanent. It's flexible. Mm -hmm. It's adaptable. You can collect so many different, you know, loose leaf ideas, just like pieces of paper. But at any time you can take it apart, you know, break that bind, rearrange, shuffle through and throw things out entirely. You know, you, your, your mind can change. And that's through curiosity that you can change and grow. And you still have something to show for it. But you also, it's both like a product and it's also an ongoing sort of progression and transformation, which I think is, is great. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. Those were wonderful. And audience, yours is making dinner. How is curiosity like making dinner? Let me know. I used to say Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. I don't know what's happening with Twitter anymore. So social media, <laughs> hashtag analogy. Elise, Alexa, thank you so much for this conversation. It's really been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been. Thank you, Lynn. Likewise, thank you so much for everything. It was lovely chatting with you. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your making dinner analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guests, Alexa Nitsis and Elise Kennedy. Links to Natural Curiosity and all those fabulous videos on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is A Palace of Cedar by the Pine Barrens via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs>